And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. With these words, the gospel writer Matthew lets us know Jesus is done teaching. He has essentially been holding the mic, and now he's dropped the mic and walked off the mountain, if you will. At this point, he has concluded what many consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached. Hopefully, if you've been with us at some point over the course of the last several months, you've come to a similar appreciation of the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully, like Jesus' original audience, many of you will walk away astonished at the teachings of Christ. This morning, we're going to engage how Jesus concludes this great sermon. How, how he concludes his teachings on, on how people are to live and act differently under the rule and reign of God. How he concludes his appeal for his listeners to live and embrace a different type of lifestyle. As I mentioned, our, our lead pastor is not with us this morning, and he has delegated me the honor of preaching the final sermon in this series. And as we begin, I want us to wrestle with a question. I want you to think you're having this type of conversation with someone, or you're having this type of conversation with a few people. You see the sin and the struggles in their life. You, you see the way they've twisted living under the rule and reign of God. You see that they're broken and they're a mess, and you want them to act differently. You want them to experience something different. You're telling them they need to change what they're doing. How would you end such an appeal? What what, what kind of things would you say? Well, one one predominant approach in our culture is, is... uh, we're going we're to talk about one predominant approach in our culture. This approach was recently displayed on, on a brief clip I encountered of a cartoon family that many of you are probably familiar with, The Simpsons. Now, I don't know how many of you watch The Simpsons as a Christian. There is much to object to, so I understand if you have not. So for those less familiar with the program, let me give you a little background. The Simpson parents... They're Homer and Marge, and they have three kids, Bart and Lisa and baby Maggie. And Bart is the oldest child. I think he's about 10, and he is a perennial troublemaker. You always see him getting into all sorts of trouble. He rejects and despises authority. He embraces sin. He's definitely a mess. And mom, Marge, she's continually thinking through how to reach him. How to help him change, how to help him act differently. So one night, Homer and Marge, they find themselves at a parent meeting at Bart's school to help your child establish the path to success, to help them change what they're doing. And the speaker says the problem with kids today, it's not that they're disobedient, it's their low self-esteem. To get kids to change, parents need to build up their self-esteem with more positive reinforcement. The kids, they don't need more consequences for bad behavior. They don't need more warnings. No, she says, we need to give our kids more certificates and more trophies, no matter if they deserve them or not. 
If kids feel they're worthy of trophies, well, then they will do good things. And so Marge is convinced. She wants to change Bart's actions. So as they're exiting the school, she tells Homer, yes, trophies. This is what Bart needs. This is how we save him. These are her exact words, by the way. Very interesting. Homer's, of course, less convinced. I didn't get trophies, and I turned out just fine. (laughs) Of course, the audience laughs, because we all know Homer didn't turn out just fine. So the next morning, Bart wakes up to a a trophy next to him in bed. Mom, how how did you get this trophy next to me in bed? Well, and she says, well, Bart, I, I had to put it there because you are a champion sleeper, son. You did such a good job breathing last night that you needed this trophy. Now, this idea of propping up self-esteem to get individuals to change what they're doing, giving trophies for simply breathing or eating or sleeping, it, it pervades our culture. And in some ways, it pervades our theology. Isn't this how we want Jesus to finish his appeal to his listeners that they should act differently? Don't we want him to tell them that no matter what they do, it doesn't matter. God loves them. God cares for them. Even if they hear his teaching and do nothing, they're still special. God has an amazing plan for their life, plans to prosper them and give them hope in a future. Shouldn't Jesus make them feel better about who they are in order to act differently? As we conclude the Sermon on the Mount, we'll find Jesus makes no such appeal. He doesn't appeal to affirming everyone is loved no matter what. He doesn't appeal to affirming God cares for everyone no matter what. Rather, he tells them, there are consequences for the decisions you're making today. Each of us is like a builder, building a house on a foundation, and there are fierce storms coming. Jesus says, beware, some of you, the foundation you are building, how you've chosen to spend your time and money, how you have chosen to honor your marriage, how you have chosen to love others, It will not last, and you will be destroyed. Others of you, you will build on Christ as your foundation, and it will change how you act, how you love others, how you spend your time and money, and rather than be destroyed, you will endure. Everyone doesn't get a trophy. Jesus tells his listeners, the decisions you make matter. So so our big idea this morning is building on the right foundation saves you from a fierce future storm. To end his sermon, Jesus tells a parable. And in doing so, he challenges his listener to think about the integrity of the foundation of their lives. They need a strong foundation. They need a firm foundation to endure a fierce future storm. So to help them examine the integrity of their foundation, We're going to look at a couple questions he leads his listeners to wrestle with. One, what are you doing with Christ's teachings? And two, how will you fare in a fierce future storm? So let's begin with, what are you doing with Christ's teachings? In verse 24, what Ben read earlier, Jesus says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he contrasts this in verse 26 where he, when he says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. So the, the builder who has built his house on the sand, that person is the one who hears Christ's words and does not do them. Those are the type of actions he is known for. That's, what, that's what's characteristic of who he is. The builder who has built his house on the rock, that person is the one who hears Christ's words and does them. The, the type of actions, the type of life, the, the thing he's known for, the, what's characteristic of him in having a solid foundation is that he hears Christ's words and he does the words of Christ. He does, he puts Christ's teachings into action. Now notice what Jesus is not settling for. He doesn't say, when you hear these words of mine and you think about them, you're like a wise builder. Or when you hear these words of mine and you memorize them, you're like a wise builder. Or when you hear these words of mine and it moves you emotionally, you're like a wise builder. Or when you hear these words of mine and you talk about them in your small group, you're, you're like a wise builder. Or, or when you hear these words of mine and you make the right profession and use big words and you know the right type of theology, you're like a wise builder. Or, or even when you hear these words of mine and intend to do them or pray about doing them, you're like a wise builder. Jesus doesn't settle for a sense of the intellect or a sense of superficial belief or a sense of intending to change. Although this may be part of what Christ teaches, ultimately, it is something much deeper. The wise builder is everyone. Everyone. A very inclusive word. All, all peoples from all nations who hear these words of mine and do them. Makes them happen. Produces that type of fruit. That's who the, that, that's who the wise builder is like. Now, to understand the contrast between the wise builder who does the words of Christ and the foolish builder who does not do the words of Christ, one of the things that comes to mind for Christians my age, this will, this will date me, is a song called Two Sets of Joneses. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody? Okay, so a few. These are probably, these are probably people in your 30s and 40s. This is a, a song that was released in 1995, so 23 years ago. This is like when Bill Clinton was president. This is when Michael Jordan, some of you don't even know who that is, when he came out of retirement the first time. Uh, this is actually, actually the, at the time, 1995, the speed limit on the interstates was still 55 miles per hour, right? That practice was abandoned in 1995, so it would take like two days to get to Denver, uh, where it takes eight now, right? Um, and, and there was this great movie that came out in 1995 about this, this, this group of people who were mysteriously transported into this board game, this action board game. It was called Jumanji. <laughs> I guess it was so good that it, they remade it this year. Of course, this one was better with Robin Williams. Anyway, for those not familiar with the song, it, it's the story of two couples, Rothschild and Evelyn, who, who in building their life upon the sand, they pursue wealth and pleasure. The other, the other couple is a Christian couple, Reuben and Sue, who in building their life upon the rock, they pursue Christ. So when the storms come, Rothschild and Evelyn fall, just like the parable teaches. They get a divorce. 
On the other hand, when the storms come for Reuben and Sue, while it's hard, their marriage stands strong. Okay, this is a reasonable application of this passage. However, it, does, it gives us the impression that the actions of the foolish builder and the wise builder look drastically different. Rothschild's and Evelyn's actions are to pursue material wealth. Reuben and Sue's actions are church attendance, simplicity, sacrificial giving. Jesus says the foolish builder and the wise builder hear his words. There is a a sort of presence with Christ's words that they both experience. This isn't necessarily portrayed in the contrast between how Rothschild and Evelyn live and how Reuben and Sue live. And so it's an incomplete contrast. So perhaps a a better contrast is found in the book of Job. Job and his wife, both are successful business people. Both are engaged in the Israelite faith. Both are dedicated to their marriage and their family. Both hear the words of the Lord. And then the storms come. Terrorists attack their business. All of their children perish when there's this great wind that comes across the wilderness, causing the roof of the home they're gathered in to collapse. Job's health, which is one of the last things he has going for him, it eventually fails and he gets sores and boils all over his body. And so in the, in the midst of trial, Job and his wife respond very differently. Job's wife reacts and says, curse God and die. Job reacts saying, my Redeemer lives. Both of them were familiar with the faith of the Israelites. Both of them were familiar with the words of the Lord. But for one, his actions reveal a deep inner trust in God's character. For the other, her actions reveal inwardly she judges God's character. If her life is blessed by her standards, God is good. If, on the other hand, she experiences hardship and trials, God is not worthy of her worship. The actions of the foolish builder and the actions of the wise builder, they often appear far more similar. The foolish builder Jesus described appears less like Rothschild and Evelyn and actually more like Reuben and Sue. Listen to Sermon on the Mount scholar and professor Joseph Pennington. The contrast between the wisely and foolish built houses is not based on their appearance or outward construction. Indeed, one can imagine the foolish one's house being possibly much more attractive and embellished, even as the Pharisees' fasting, almsgiving, and praying practices were complete with long tassels and lengthy open pontification. So they were, they were church attenders, they were active in the church, Rather, the difference between the house person that withstands the storm and the one that does not is at the hidden level of the foundation, the unseen but essential starting point. So so in the same way, Jesus doesn't settle for assent of the intellect. He doesn't settle for mere external assent either. Like Job and his wife, both the foolish builder and the wise builder hear the words of the Lord. They both engage his teachings, but one of them obeys his teachings about the inner person. The other does not. The actions of two individuals 
look similar externally, but they are distinguished at the level of the heart. So let's, let's talk about how actions could look very similar externally, but be distinguished at the level of the heart with a few examples. One, we have two people. Both of them often have others into their home. They practice hospitality often. One of them does so out of insecurity. She can't stand to be alone. And so from, ha- from having others over, she gains security and status and identity. The other does so because she is burdened for others to experience freedom and connection in their relationship with Christ. Rather than gain security, she sacrifices much of her rights and her comfort to be a hostess and to welcome in those who are not welcomed in otherwise. Two people with very similar external actions but distinguished at the level of the heart. We have two other people. They both give 10% of their income to the church. One of them does so because that is what the law requires. And so it's a burden to give 10%, or it's a source of pride. I'm much better than others because I give 10%. The others does so because it's a good starting point to give generously and sacrificially because there is such a desire to see God's kingdom expand. And so actually it's not enough. They want to be able to give more. Two people with very similar actions, but distinguished at the level of the heart. Two other people. They both attend church regularly. One attends because the music is fun. Their kids need to have good morals. It's good to be connected at church. The other attends because the sermons lead to repentance. The the people challenge others to love and follow Jesus. The worship is a small taste of what one will experience in heaven. Two people with very similar actions, but distinguished at the level of the heart. And last one, two other people who often talk to others about how much God loves sinners. But one does so because she is burdened for others to follow Jesus as Lord. The other does so because she doesn't want to be an outcast in her culture. And so it's much easier to emphasize the positive attributes of God as perceived by the culture around her. Two people with very similar actions externally but distinguished at the level of the heart. The actions at the heart level, they reveal the surface the foundation is being built into. Each of the two builders have outward actions that are very similar externally, but the inner actions are very different. Maybe the foolish builder trusts in the praises of men. Maybe the the foolish builder makes her children more precious to her than God. Maybe the foolish builder even follows Jesus' teaching sometimes when it's convenient, when it makes sense to, to him or her, when it aligns with his or her will, because that is what is at the foundation. But when Christ's teachings do not make sense to him or her, when Jesus' teachings are hard and call him out to denounce his will, it can't be done. Eventually, the foolish builder comes to a place where his will reigns. And like Job's wife, cries out, curse God and die. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We have listened to the Sermon on the Mount and perhaps have understood it. But who has truly heard it? Jesus gives the answer at the end. 
He does not allow his listeners to go away and make of his sayings what they will, picking and choosing from whatever they may find helpful and testing them to see if they work. He does not give them free reign to misuse his word with their mercenary hands, but gives it to them on condition that it retains exclusive power over them. The only proper response to this word which Jesus brings with him from eternity is simply to do it. Jesus has spoken, his is the word, ours is the obedience. The wise builder understands that Jesus is his rock. He understands that Jesus isn't simply an earthly king. He is an eternal king. He is the king of kings. He understands that when he sins, the source of his redemption isn't a certain sense of guilt or a certain sense of making it right by doing good actions. The source of his redemption is Jesus. He understands that the key to successful living isn't having a better self-esteem, but knowing more deeply who he is in Christ. He understands that Jesus isn't simply one who teaches with authority. He is the source of all authority. And because of this, because Jesus is the rock he builds his foundation into, when he hears Jesus' teachings about how to give generously, he doesn't think he should do something different. He doesn't intend to do something different. He actually does something different. And when he hears Jesus' teachings on prayer, it changes the way he prays. And when he hears Jesus' teachings on lust and divorce, it changes his sexual ethic and how he pursues unity and how he interacts with members of the opposite sex. And when he hears Jesus' teachings on loving others according to the golden rule, he doesn't simply think it's a good idea. He doesn't simply believe it's a good idea others should follow. He actually takes time to surrender his rights and his discomfort at the heart level in his relationship with others. Our actions reveal what foundation we are building into. The one who is building into the rock hears his word and does it. This is one question Jesus leads his listeners to wrestle with. What are you doing with Christ's teachings? Now on to question number two. How will you fare in a fierce future storm? In the text, Jesus describes the future of two men encountering a fierce storm. As we read, One is like a wise man who, again, has built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And as we read, the other man is like a foolish man who has built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Each of these men will face a fierce future storm. Jesus is being a realist here. He's telling his listeners, you need to think about the future storm. You need to think about how you will do after the storm. Will you endure or or will you be destroyed? I think we can all recognize how earthly structures either endure or or are destroyed by earthly storms. And the thing that often makes the difference is the foundation, building on the right foundation. It it determines the builder who has a building who will endure or, or the building that will be destroyed. 
Jesus is encouraging his listeners to think about the day after the storm. Will you be like that builder who endures? Or, or will your work be destroyed? So just like earthly storms reveal the foundation of a physical home, there are storms and trials that you and I experience that reveal the strength of our soul. Singles. Many of you long to get married. And one of the storms you may experience is remaining single longer than you ever hoped. It may mean you never marry. It may mean the potential someone who you have in mind rejects you or hurts you and pulls away. Will such a storm destroy you? Or will you endure? Women and men, many of you long to have children or you long to have more children. You may face a storm where you're unable to have children, either because you don't enter into marriage or because of struggles with infertility. Maybe you lose a baby to miscarriage. Will such a storm destroy you or will you endure? Parents, I got to be a realist. Your children will not meet your expectations. Their actions will disappoint you at various times. You will play out particular narratives. You have ideas on how you want their journey of childhood to proceed, and they will not meet all of those expectations. Will such a storm destroy you, or or will you endure? Those of you who are younger, who have not yet had any health issues, your body will experience decay at some point. You, you will experience disease or disability or a slowing down. Those of you who, who, with health issues, you know what I'm talking about. You remember being young and invincible. And then all of a sudden, one morning, one visit to the doctor, everything changes. You realize your body isn't perfect. It is weak, and it is not what you hoped it would be. Will such a storm destroy you, or will you endure? Those of you that have embraced diving deeper into community. You confess into one another. You, you participate in gospel community. You invite others into your life. And one day, community is going to let you down. Others will reject you. They might gossip about you. They, will, they may not love you the way you expect them to. Will such a storm destroy you? Or will you endure? Workers, some of you will lose a job. Some of you will work in a job that you hate For years, some of you will be told you're going to get a raise or a promotion only to have the follow-up conversation. Hey, hey, that that raise we talked about, actually we we had to go a different direction. Will such a storm destroy you or, or will you endure? And for everyone, someday, if you have not experienced this already, you will lose someone close to you. A parent, a brother, a sister, a close friend, perhaps even a child, the storm will be painful and harsh that day. Will such a storm destroy you, or will you endure? You'll note that that the day the storm arrives, you won't be building on the foundation that day. You'll be standing on the foundation that you have built. So when the storms come, will you endure Like Job, will you cry out, my Redeemer lives? Or when the storm comes, will you be destroyed, crying out, curse God and die? Of course, we can certainly interpret Jesus here referring to the everyday storms of life. 
But there is a, a fiercer storm Jesus is alluding to. Something much worse and much harsher than anything we will experience on this earth. The Apostle Paul alludes to this day in his first letter to the Corinthians. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Jesus is pointing to a a future storm when God's wrath and fury will be poured out on each one of us. Judgment day. And on that day, our works and our hearts will be exposed. And that storm, it will be worse than any storm we experienced. The rain will fall. The floods will come. The winds will blow and beat us down. And who we are, the choices we've made, how we've lived, it will be exposed to the core. Will such a future day destroy you? Will you cry out, curse God and die? Or will you endure, crying out, my Redeemer lives? For those who are in Christ, for those who do what Christ says, because he is your foundation, you will endure the future storm. When you stand before God on judgment day and your works will be on display because you have surrendered to him and obeyed, you will endure. My Redeemer lives. The house that you have built will not fall because Christ is your foundation. Now to conclude, I want to I think through, I want to wrestle with a couple missional implications of, of what Jesus is getting at. And in particular, how he's concluding this, this call, this petition, this final appeal for people to experience life differently. First, I want to talk to, to parents in the room. Beyond making disciples of others, you've been charged with making disciples of your kiddos to, to help them grow to hear the teachings of Christ and to do the teachings of Christ. So for parents, in a day when building our kids' self-esteem has become the latest and greatest parenting philosophy, where we've denounced the models of our forefathers that emphasized authority or consequences or warning too much, and there are certainly some good things that have come out of this, we need to be cautious. Many of us, we've come to a place where we want to protect our kids from experiencing any and all types of pain. As such, we're moving to places where we abandon talking about consequences. We're not addressing our children when they are disobedient or when they are wise in their own eyes. A passage like this helps fully shape how we parent our kids. Rather than simply believing that if we tell our kids God's love, God loves them no matter what, God cares for them no matter what, rather than believing that if we do that, their behavior will change, we need to recognize what Jesus is doing here. We, we need to recognize there is some element, there is some importance to warning. We need to recognize the importance of teaching our kids about negative consequences of rejecting authority. And so, parents, are you willing to do that? Do you do that? You will need to tell your kids sometimes their actions deserve God's wrath. You will need to tell them sometimes they're like a builder. And you'll need to get them engaged thinking about the question, what are they building? Are they building something that will endure? 
Or are they building something that will be destroyed? Two, this is the second implication. We live in a culture that is very familiar with the words of Christ. They hear his words. And while this is changing, many in our culture still identify as Christians. What leads them to identify as such is not whether or not they do Christ's teachings. It is often something more along the lines of whether or not they attend church on most Sundays, or whether they pray a particular prayer of salvation, or whether they align themselves with a particular political party, or whether they subscribe to a particular set of theological beliefs. These marks of conversion, they should concern us. So there's a quote from Jonathan Edwards that keeps messing with me as a pastor and as somebody who works in the marketplace and who lives in a neighborhood where I know many people are far from Christ. How many creatures are there that think they are in the way to heaven who are not? There are many that think that they are undoubtedly in the way to heaven and without question shall enter there at last that have not the least grain of true holiness that manifest none in their lives and conversations, of whom we may be certain that either they have no holiness at all, or that which they have is a dormant, inactive sort, which is in effect to be certain that there is none. What a miserable condition they are in, to step out of this world into an uncertain eternity with an expectation of finding themselves exceedingly happy and blessed in the highest heaven, and all at once finding themselves deceived and are undeceived, finding themselves sinking in the bottomless pit. Okay, what, 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 am, I, what am I saying here? Do I, want, do I want all of you to walk out and question whether or not you're a Christian? No, absolutely not. I don't want that to happen, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. Some of you, may, maybe, maybe that is what the Holy Spirit is, is up to this morning, but many of you, I look around and I know many of you have great reason to rejoice because your actions prove that Christ is the foundation you're building your life upon. There is much to rejoice in as I think about First City Church. So if I'm not hoping y'all walk out of here and, and, and question whether or not you're a Christian, what do I want? Well, here, here's, here's what I think. I think we very much believe that unchurched people are part of the mission field God has called us to. Or, or people who were maybe a part of the church for a time, but then rejected church later on. But one of the, the implications with what Jesus is getting at here is we need to be open to the reality that the coworker or, or the neighbor that attends church regularly isn't actually converted. They may be a part of the mission field God has called you or I to. Now, I don't want us to be the church that calls everyone in other, every other church false converts. I don't want us to be uh, the church that questions th- that type of thing. But I do want us to be aware of the conversations that we're a part of with churched people. Where God may be revealing the fruits of false conversion. Someone who is rejecting Christ's teachings or someone who is rebelling from Christ's teachings or a lack of a heart of repentance. So in the same way we believe we need to proclaim the gospel to unchurched people, there are times we need to proclaim the gospel to our church friends and family as well. 
Because there is a day when the churched and the unchurched, the foundation of all of our souls will be on display. We need to be burdened by that. And the rains will fall and the floods will come and the winds will blow and the people who trust in themselves or or trust in some external actions, their, their works will be destroyed. But if they trust in Christ, if he is their foundation, they will endure and they will cry out, my Redeemer lives.